Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. That song is a prayer, and it's a wonderful, wonderful prayer to ask the Lord when we open his word. So let's pray. Even now, Lord, speak as we come to your word. Even now, as we open your eternal word, would you write its truth upon our hearts? For we confess, Lord, we have been malformed by our own wishes and our own desires. And we confess, Lord, that we have been conformed by the lies of the world around us, the bad voices of the people around us. And we ask now that as you speak, you would transform us and write the eternal truth of your word upon our conscience and upon our heart. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. We'll read together from Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Colossians 2, verse 1, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. My goal for this series is that you would reach full assurance of understanding. He says in verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. That's the concern that prompted me to come up with the idea of this series and to bounce it off the elders, is that there are plausible arguments all around that are leading us or threatening to lead us away from the treasures of the wisdom of Christ. Verse 5, for though I am absent in spirit, yet I'm with you in, though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. That's what we'll be getting at in these next few weeks, unraveling the empty, deceitful philosophies of the world according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And then reading from perhaps a familiar passage in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So as you know, normally we do expository preaching verse by verse by verse through a book in the Bible. We just finished Isaiah. The next book we're going to tackle, Lord willing, will be 1 Peter. But once in a while, once in a blue moon of a while, it's profitable to address a topic or a contemporary question with our Bible open. 
And this series just represents the, uh, the, the three or five or six or seven or eight questions that I've been asked the most in the last, say, four years or so about the world and what's happening all around us. Every era, every day has its own particular challenges. Romans 12, the world conforms in a different way today than it did 20 years ago than it did 80 years ago, but the world is always trying to conform us. If we went back to the, to the earliest challenges of the church, if you know church history, like the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Chalcedon, there were worldly thoughts and untrue thoughts about the nature of Christ, his humanity and his deity. And so the church worked really hard to clarify that. If we went back to the Reformation, there were worldly philosophies about justification. Is it by sacraments and works or is it by grace alone through faith alone? And the church worked really hard to fix that. If we had to say, what is the challenge today? I think the challenge today is, what are people? What, are, what is a woman? What is a man? What is sex for? What is marriage? We're going to talk about, or I'm going to talk about uh, homosexuality and transgender issues. And, and please let me say this. Hopefully I'll remember to say this next week or the next time that I talk about these issues. Uh, I'm not talking about homosexuality and, and transsexual. I'm not talking about people who sin in these ways uh, because I do not love them or even because I do not like them. I can tell you honestly, I like them with human affection and I love them with God's love. And I'm not talking about these things because these sins are like super icky sins that are worse than my own. You hear me? My own sins are completely equally damnable before a holy God as anybody's sins. The reason I'm talking about these things is because these are the times that we live in. Nobody's arguing about, did Jesus really die on the cross or did he just swoon and then he like just walked out of the tomb because he was in a temporary state of suspension? Like, maybe they argued about that in the 1920s, but nobody's arguing about that today. They're not even arguing like they did 30 years ago when I, uh, when I was a youth pastor about how is it fair for Jesus to be the only way? Pluralism and tolerance, I don't think, is even the main issue anymore. The issues today are questions of human sexuality, divine design, men and women. Whether it's the Torah of the Old Testament or the epistles of the New Testament, the Bible declares in no uncertain terms that homosexuality and other forms of sexual deviance are evidence of a society that is dying and decaying and being ruined. And yet, from our presidential administration to all of our major media companies, they're declaring that these particular sins are a sign of a society that is coming to life and being liberated in true love and that to oppose these things is hateful and immoral. 
I think some of this is behind this question today, which people are asking, which is, why is the world so crazy? Or the other question that I'm asked even more than that is, are things getting worse? Or another way to put that is, uh, are things as bad as they've ever been? Like, has there ever been a time as dark as our own time? So why is the world so crazy? Are things getting worse? Uh, is this really the worst of times that, has, that, that there has ever been? And so we want to answer that question from Scripture and from a, a sound theology and a Christian worldview. Are, are things getting worse? The answer to that question is yes. Things are getting worse. So Christian, uh, or even some non-Christian, but mostly Christian cultural commentators who are way more adept at this than I am, have given the taxonomy of a positive, negative, or positive, neutral, negative world. When it comes to being a Christian, at least here in the West, we used to live in a positive world, then we lived in a neutral world, and now we live in a negative world. Just speaking about, say, the U.S. in the last hundred years or so. Years ago in the U.S., being a Christian was a positive if someone on your street was a Christian, and they, you would expect that person to be honest and moral. And then maybe for a little while, it was a neutral. And actually now, to be a biblical Christian and believe in things like men are men and women are women and marriage is one man and one woman is, is, a, is a negative. It makes you to be viewed as an immoral or an unkind or a hateful person. Uh, we see this all the time. Whether it's a, a Christian athlete or a Roman Catholic athlete refusing to wear a rainbow jersey in their sporting event, or whether it's someone objecting to pronouns uh, like police in the workplace or whatever it is. If you're known as a Bible-believing Christian who doesn't, who doesn't agree with these things, then it, it's actually the assumption is that you're less moral and less loving and more hateful than the people around you. The sort of positive, neutral, negative world. We've moved from a positive world to a neutral didn't last very long to a, to a negative world. That neutrality was sort of like, I don't know if it was in the 60s where there's just like a permissiveness. You know, the Christians are fine and they're doing their thing and the hippies are fine and they're doing their thing and there's this sort of a, sort of a neutrality. What's shocking today is that things that the Bible calls evil and evidences of decay and death are celebrated as the positive good of the future of a flourishing society. This is, a, this is not just a, a, a different opinion. This is completely underwater and upside down. And even more stunning to some of us is that what, what we actually hear said, that what the Bible calls good is not merely unnecessary, but is now a positive evil that's destroying people. So things are worse and getting worse. So maybe I'd answer the question, yes. But on the other hand, maybe I'd answer the question, no. Things are certainly not the worst that they've ever been. And to answer the question, are things getting worse, you have to have a reference point. Are they worse now than they were in Mayberry in 1952? Probably. Are they worse now than they were under Nero? Uh, probably not. 
So I'm like, on the one hand, things are worse. On the other hand, things aren't worse. It depends on your reference point, which is one of my, uh, I don't know if it's a conviction because it's not a theological conviction, but it's an opinion, is that the word unprecedented is a disgusting word that needs to be thrown out because nothing on the planet is unprecedented. There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. If we're to find a precedent for our times, we could, we could go back to the, the, basically the church right after the apostle John died on the Isle of Patmos, like the, the, the very first century church after the apostles, because their Christianity was a little understood, despised, evilly spoken of, marginalized sect. If, if you know the, the history of that time, because the church celebrated communion, the rumor was that somehow they're cannibalistic and they're eating their God. Because the church called each other brothers and sisters, the rumor was that the church was built on incestuous, sexually immoral relationships. And because the church proclaimed Jesus is Lord, everybody in governmental authority was like, that is a seditious statement against the lordship of the Caesar. So are things getting worse? Well, not really. Not if you compare us to our first great, 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 great grandmothers and grandfathers. In the Corinthian context, meat sacrificed to idols. This is, it's funny. It's, we, uh, this is one of those places where like, if, if someone's going to teach on meat sacrifice to idols or something like that, we're like, wow, it's, it's such a large gap. And what did that even mean? And how does it apply? It, it's exactly, exactly what's happening today. In Corinth, um, when you had a meal, you just threw out a pinch of incense to Diana or Aphrodite. And it didn't mean anything. It's just what everybody did. And for a Christian to refuse to do that, the Corinthians were like, well, why wouldn't you do that? That's, that's our Corinthian culture and it's the way everybody lives. Why, why would you resist that? And now in, in more and more and more and more schools and more and more and more workplaces and more and more and more major league sporting events, you just have to put up the rainbow. You just have to put a pinch of incense towards this deviant behavior because that's what everybody does and just go along to get along. And the world can't even comprehend why we would resist such things. Well, why wouldn't you do that? That's, that's the way everybody does it. It's been well observed by cultural commentators who are more adept at this than I am that uh, sexual freedom or like erotic independence, the whole LGBTQ plus thing, is in, in every way a religion. And you just kind of lay out the, 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 way that it's, the way that it's accepted and the way that it's, that it's promoted, that in every way it's like a religion. But that was always the case in Corinth anyway. So on the other hand, it isn't worse than it's ever been. And yet, on the other hand, I'd probably say yes, it is actually worse than it's been before. As far as issues of anthropology and men and women in marriage, simple example of the sea change in this area. I'm going I'm to mention 
politicians by name. I'm, that, I'm not doing so because I'm lobbying for something political here or there. I'm mentioning this because this is the world that we live in. If you go back, the, and I was there, I was there. The first time Obama ran, the first time he ran, he had to say, when asked by a reporter, what is marriage? He had to say, I believe marriage traditionally is one man and one woman. He said that repeatedly during his first run. Now, imagine Biden or Harris answering the same question the same way that Obama did the first time. Imagine that. They, it, it's, un, it's unimaginable. It's like, it's completely unimaginable. This is what tempts me to say, well, things are worse now because this sea change, this total sea change in how we answer that question and what's an expected normal answer to that question is, is, is unbelievable. It happens so fast. Language and vocabulary that nobody even knew what it meant 30 years ago is now the defining marker for whether you're in or out. And it happened so fast. Romans 12, be not conformed, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so on the one hand, this is like the easiest time to be conformed into the pattern of the world. And yet on the other hand, this is the best time to be transformed by the word of God and to show people who Jesus is, that Jesus loves sinners, that he died for sinners. And I'm the chief example, and so are you. We're not, we're not waving a moralistic finger at anybody when we say that. We're saying Jesus died to save sinners. Repent of your sin and come to Jesus. So how did we get here? Look with me at uh, uh, Matthew 28. Hopefully you can find Matthew 28 pretty easy, the Great Commission. It actually takes me a minute to find it. This is a new Bible up here. I had to, I had to switch to super large print. <laughs> you, got, you guys know, right? My body is 24. And my, and my mind is like 12 years old, but my eyes are f over 50 years old. We'll just leave it at that. So this is the ultra-large print edition Bible. The pages are still a little sticky. <laughs> Matthew 28 says in verse 16, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Much that could be said about that precious text, which gives us our vision, making and training disciples who make and train disciples, point out three facets. One, Jesus speaks the truth 
and has commands that need to be observed. So Jesus doesn't just talk about things. Jesus doesn't give an alternative perspective about things. Jesus speaks truth that needs to be obeyed. That's number one. Second, Jesus expects us to receive that truth and obey it ourselves. Jesus speaks truth that he expects us, us to receive and obey. Jesus has all authority and he speaks truth. Second, he expects us to receive and obey that truth. Third, he also expects that if we are his disciples, we will share that truth with others in our own nation and in every nation around the world. This is what he expects. This is what he expects, that we'll teach it to others. From Matthew 28, I want to show you the background for this. Turn back to Deuteronomy 6. Man, these, that this these pages are really sticky in this Bible. Deuteronomy, it's somewhere after Genesis, right? Why am I having trouble locating it? <laughs> I got it now, I got it. <laughs> Deuteronomy 6. Jesus didn't grab this great commission thing out of thin air. Like everything he said, Jesus was applying the word of God. In this case, Deuteronomy 6. Echoes of it all over the Great Commission. Deuteronomy 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land which you are going over to possess. So even in verse 1, we have commands and then we have observing the commands. He's not just yakking about a worldview. He's saying, I expect you to live this out. Same as the Great Commission. That you may fear the Lord your God and your son, you and your son and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as to the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand, as frontlets between your eyes. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So, Bible Christians here in the Old Testament would have been God-fearing Israelites or Bible-believing Christians in New Testament terms relate to God, God's truth, this way. God, God is our ultimate authority and he speaks the truth to us and he expects us to receive that truth and obey that truth ourselves and he expects us to share that truth unedited and unadulterated with the next generation and the generation after that. That's what he expects. That's what we do. If we don't do that, we can call ourselves a church, but we're not a church. We're, we're nothing. Great commission. Jesus has commands that need to be obeyed. He expects us to receive and obey those commands and he expects us to pass them on to others. Deuteronomy 6, same thing. God is one. God is true. He expects us to receive and do his commands and then he expects us to transfer those on to the next generation. So to answer the question, why is the whole world so crazy? The answer is something like we have relocated truth 
And we have redefined authoritative institutions like the family and the church. Something like that. You see the family, Deuteronomy 6, Ephesians 6, 4, fathers raise up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Education, whether it's homeschool, Christian school, public school. Uh, so the family as an institution, education as an institution, and the church, certainly the church as an institution. We're all meant to do just this. As, as people enter in, the institution, the authority, whether it's the family or the church, see, we, we train up the individual who's entering in, and we teach that individual, you can't do whatever you want to do. You can't say whatever you want to say. You can't be whoever you want to be. Because the job of the authoritative institution, whether it's the family or the church, is to train up the next generation, to teach them God's truth, and to teach them to lovingly and beautifully conform themselves to God's truth. So, as a Christian dad, I was, I was not mistreating, nor was I abusing my children when I taught them, no, you need to learn how to control your feelings. You need to learn how to not act on every impulse you have. That was my job as their custodian before the Lord. That's what authority does. But not, not any longer. We seem today, our world seems today, to understand that uh, whether it's the family or, or the school or whatever, that each individual person is sort of born free and the job of the institution is to sort of help them create their own identity. The, 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 the modern self uh, believes that, that my inner feelings define reality and that the goal is that I can authentically be me, whatever I think, whatever I feel, whatever I want to do. And that's the inversion both of the Great Commission and of Deuteronomy 6. See, we have moved from thinking of institutions like the family and the church as molds which shape people into the image of God's perfect design. And instead, these institutions are like platforms that let any individual just kind of showcase who they want to be. This is what Deuteronomy 6 and what Matthew 28 are sort of predicated upon, and it's, it's an assumption that all Christians throughout all generations have had. And so we see that the church is supposed to have this position of guarding the next generation and training and teaching the next generation. I could, I could show you this from any epistle. Just listen to it from 2 Timothy 1, verses 13 and 14. 2 Timothy 1, verses uh, 13 and 14, it says... Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You see, there's truth that comes from God. I receive it and it's my job to guard it carefully and then to conform and train the next generation into that truth. It's not my job to just listen to the upcoming generation and, and let them define whatever they think the world ought to be. That's not how it works. He goes on to say in 2 Timothy 2, verse 1, 
You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So institutions of authority, we can even talk about it on a national level. That national leaders, it used to be the case, were, were supposed to, to, to train up um, respect for the past and respect for our founding institutions and a proper sense of belonging to something that's, that's not defined by each generation. There's this, sense of, there's this sense that the self is supposed to know. I'm not the first one on the scene and I'm not defining reality by my desires. And that's gone today. What it seems the case today is even our governmental institutions are under this uh, illusion that each self is supposed to define reality by their own desires. Carl Truman calls it the sovereign self. Today, the cultural role of institutions has been transformed into its opposite. Education, it, universities, colleges, it, increasingly at high schools and even elementary schools, seems to, be, uh, seems to be so greatly influenced by the politics of identity and by various critical theories that, that has this sense of self-defining truth. And so I should add another qualification, and that is that authoritative institutions like a family or a church, can get it wrong and need to be corrected. Authoritative institutions are not always right. They can get it wrong. And when they do, the consequences are grave and it needs to be addressed and they need to be rebuked and corrected. But you see, even that is under... A under a divine design that it's God's word that the family and the church is supposed to conform to. And so if the family or the church gets it wrong, they need to be corrected, what? Not by the imperial desires of the next generation, but by the standards of the truth. The standards of the truth of God's word. So it's not, it's not godless worldly identities that correct errant institutions. I suppose sometimes godless, godless worldly identities can maybe accurately point out where an institution got something wrong, but they can't correct it. What corrects it is the truth that the institution is meant to, to that, that, that gave defining birth to the church, which is the truth of Jesus Christ. All that he has said and all that he's commanded. So an, another illustration to hopefully clarify some of these worldview issues. So I went to public school, uh, middle school and high school in uh, North Hollywood, California, v liberal North Hollywood, California. The funny thing is, to this day, my sister, every now and then, she'll, uh, she'll text me a screenshot of some show that I would never watch, but that she's watching on Apple TV or Hulu or whatever. And so many of them are filmed at the schools that we went to. In, uh, in North Hollywood, that just because the landscaping's right and that's where the studios are. But anyway, I remember a math teacher that we had, his name was Mr. Fitzgibbons. And because we were mean, we nicknamed him the Fitz, the Fitz. Not because of Fitzgibbons, well, that was one reason why, but also because you ever have a teacher that 
it was like so easy to make their face turn red. It was just so easy to make him mad, so easy. And so we did it all the time. It's, I should repent of this, but we did. And as a dutifully, you know, Californian, he had up above the chalkboard, when I went to school, we had chalkboards, not computers. Uh, um, he had up above the chalkboard this quote. Uh, I dare not teach students what to think, but I shall dare to teach them how to think for themselves. You see the point of view of the, uh, the, the nature of authority and the nature of the institution? That's what he had up above. I dare not teach students what to think, but I shall dare to teach them how to think for themselves. True story. End of the year, final exam. We had to do all these math problems. And then there was a short essay where it wasn't a math problem, but we had to write, like, we, we had to write a, a little paragraph about the biography of some mathematician who made some particular proof. I don't know if it was a woman or a man, but we, we had learned about him or her, and we had to write it out. And I didn't do it, but this was my friend. Had no clue who this man or woman was or what this thing was at all. But he wrote a fantastic paragraph. And it said, when I think of such and such, I like to think of, and he wrote a beautiful little paragraph. And he turned it in. And the fits marked at zero. And my friend said, no, no, wait, 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 wait. Look at the wall. You have succeeded not in teaching me what to think, like who this person was, but you have, Fitz, you have greatly succeeded in teaching me how to think for myself, for this essay declares to you really what I feel in my heart about this person. And the Fitz's face just turned red. This is, I'm just trying to put in a snapshot the, the pattern from the Great Commission, the pattern from Deuteronomy 6. Jesus has all authority, Great Commission. God is true, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. The expectation is that we, you and I, would receive and obey that truth, and then that we would pass that truth on to the next generation. So to put the thesis of the sermon, I suppose, at the end of the sermon as opposed to the beginning, the thesis of this sermon or the answer to the question, why is the whole world so crazy? There are many answers to the question, but the one answer that I'm trying to get a grip on this morning is this. The world is so crazy because of the relocation of authority from outside to inside or from without to within. You see, the, the institution teaches you the truth. No, 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 no. We teach you how to creatively just be whoever you want to be. So it's the relocation of authority from outside to inside or from without to within. And it's the, um, it's, the, it's the inversion or the redefinition of institutions like the family and the church. It's the inversion or the redefinition of institutions like the family or the church. So instead of training up in the truth and molding the next generation according to the truth, now the institutions just have this hands-off approach where we just support whatever it is that the upcoming ones want to say about themselves or their identity. And so what do we do? My pastor growing up 
taught me this saying, which has never left me. He always used to say to me, the darker the night, the brighter the light. The darker the night, the brighter the light. We have the light. We have the light. So <laughs> Jesus even said, didn't he? When the world gets really dark, uh, don't just wah, 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 and put your light under a bushel. The darker the world gets, if you just shine up a, a little match, look how bright that's going to look in that darkness around you. The world moves on, the world gets crazier, and the little bits of sanity, the little bits of truth that even get out, they, they, they're all the more alien. And on those whom the Spirit is drawing, all the more attractive as the night gets darker, the truth gets brighter. Because Jesus is Lord. And we hold to the truth. See, not only because Jesus said all authority has been given to me, though that is true, and he, and he does deserve it, and he is true, but you and I hold to the truth not only because it's true, but because, can you celebrate this with me? Because Jesus, Jesus, to whom all authority belongs, he bled and he died for you. We don't just conform to him because he's right, though he is. We conform to him because he is our savior. We were dead and he gave us life. We were orphans and he adopted us. We were widows, destitute, and he married us and gave us everything that he's ever had. He's our savior. He's our savior. So this is our conviction. And so just as the people in Corinth couldn't understand why you wouldn't just drop a pinch of incense to Aphrodite, and maybe the next time I'm at the bank, they're not going to understand why I won't put my preferred pronouns on my little card. Why wouldn't you just do that? Everybody just does that. Well, I can't. Because Jesus Christ is my Savior and my Lord. And I believe I'm who he says I am. The old song by, uh, it's been redone a lot of times. I think Rich Mullins first wrote it where he put the Apostles' Creed to music. And he just had a great line in the chorus. I believe what I believe. It, it's what makes me who I am. I did not make it. No, it is making me. I did not make it. No, it is making me. It is the very truth of God, not the invention of any man. That's what we believe about the truth because who we have trusted in is our Lord Jesus Christ. And so to, to sum it up, if I've got two convictions, and I do, that I not just for today, but that I've long-term prayed that, that this pulpit would somehow help to produce in you. It's first that you would know the gospel and trust Jesus so strongly, that you would know the gospel and trust Jesus so strongly that you can die without fear. That's number one. That you would know the gospel and trust Jesus so strongly that you could die without fear. And the second thing I always pray for myself and for you is that you would treasure the gospel and love Jesus so dearly that your own sins within wouldn't make you disloyal to him. 
See what I mean? That you would love Jesus so dearly that your own sins within wouldn't make you disloyal to him and that the pressure and the temptations of Babylon without would not make you disloyal to him. You see? That your own sins within wouldn't lead you away from him and that all of the pressures in Babylon and all of the idols to just go along and offer that pinch of incense, that they wouldn't tempt you or lead you to be disloyal to Jesus. Because after all, he's our savior. And to him, all authority has been given in heaven and on earth. And we gladly receive and have been baptized in his name because Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we've opened your word, would you, by your gracious Holy Spirit, write it upon our hearts? Would you strengthen our convictions in the truth of your word? And would you make us bold to not bow down to the idols of this world, but to proclaim with love and compassion that Jesus is the Lord? This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.